The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Voice Like a Jangly Bell edition. It's Wednesday, October 23rd, 2019. On today's show, Pain and Glory is the new autobiographical film from the Spanish writer-director Pedro Almodovar. We're joined by Slate's very own June Thomas, who interviewed uh, Almodovar for Slate for the magazine. Very curious to talk to her about that and what she thinks of the movie. And then she is arguably the least disliked human being on the planet. Dolly Parton is now also the subject of a deep dive podcast from Jad Abumrad, co-host of Radio Lab, which comes out of uh, public radio in New York City. And finally, Dan Coyce joins us to talk about his wonderful profile of Lauren Gunderson, the most popular playwright in America, who I had never heard of. Um, Joining me today is Julia Turner, who's the deputy managing editor of the Los Angeles Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And uh, of course, uh, Dana Stevens is the film critic of Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, greetings. So eager to talk to you about this movie, both of you and June. Pedro Almodovar is the great Spanish film director. It's fair to say he's has to be regarded now as a European master and to be classed with Bergman and Truffaut as one of the medium's really great incorrigible humanists. A writer-director for whom filmmaking has, has always been autobiography. He's now entering his late phase and his new movie, Pain and Glory, is so tender, so beautiful, so elegiac, really as deeply autobiographical as movie making gets. It tells the story of what is an obvious alter ego, Salvador Mayo, played sublimely by Antonio Banderas, a film director and screenwriter who neither directs nor writes. He's beset instead with illness, psychosomatic illness, insomnia, depression. And as the movie unfolds, drug addiction, I'm making the movie sound depressing. (laughs) It's not depressing at all. He's haunted by the past, and in the course of the movie, he really reckons with three, as it were, ghosts from his own life, an actor from one of his early films uh, from whom he's been estranged for three decades or so, the memory of his deceased mother who made through whose enormous sacrifice he was able to become who he is, and also an old lover, uh, an early love affair uh, that he apparently has never entirely gotten over. Okay, well, because this is obviously a movie entirely in Spanish where you are faced with something of a dilemma about a clip, but we decided to play a piece of the trailer. If nothing else, get the wonderful oral hush of the film uh, conveyed to our listeners. Well, why don't we listen to it? Why don't we listen to that now? Estoy con Salvador Mayo. Si tú ves algo raro, me llamas. Aquí todo es raro. ¿Nos conocemos? Sí. Me gustaría ser un hombre para bañarme en el río desnuda. ¿Y qué es? ¿Drama o comedia? Pues no sé. Eso, eso no se sabe. All right, well, we are joined by uh, June Thomas, who is senior managing producer for Slate Podcasts. June, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're here because of your cherished opinion about the movie, but but also because you interviewed Almodovar on the occasion of his 70th birthday to ask him about the film. Uh, tell us what that was like and what you learned. It was actually the third time I've interviewed him. And I have to say that, you know, I've interviewed some people, but I never can leave the room that of being with him without just being a total fangirl of thinking that this is a genius, that this is a kind man and a true artist. Um, he, you know, there are things in his movies, especially in the early movies, that 
you know, are are hard and and kind of repulsive sometimes. Um, but I think being in his presence, you realize that even those weird repulsive things were not like from a they were they came from a place of kindness and from a, a kind of a pure heart, uh, and that just he's he's I mean he really is a genius, and and that it's so much thought goes into his movies and so much uh, I don't know so much heart. It, there really is something uh, tremendous about him. He's he's a real force, and yeah. it was his birthday when I uh, the, it was his seventieth birthday, and it was it was kind of cool. He got the when we were I was in he always does his interviews in a hotel room, which is his hotel room, and um, he somebody brought champagne like from the hotel they just kind of delivered it uh and he offered it to me but unfortunately we couldn't get the uh we couldn't get the bottle open so i almost drank champagne in his presence but we couldn't get the bottle open in time i love watching his movies and keeping an eye out for the motifs and hallmarks like are there actresses who seem like i should have been watching their career for decades who have incredible faces and like sharp asymmetrical haircuts yes <laughs> there are are there like lavish spanish interiors where things more things are weirdly shiny than they seem like they would be in an american home and yet it all feels very composed and beautiful yes there are uh are is there a recurring obsession with moms of various sorts and stripes like yes here come the moms <laughs> Um, and each one is its own uh, different composition of those motifs and elements. And you always come out of it feeling, yeah, that sort of heightened sense of awareness of the world and awe of being someone who is in it. But I'm curious to hear you speak a little bit about how his work connects to his Spanishness. I mean, I was mm. I was sort of struck by that in, in uh, watching the part of this movie where the director talks about how in his pursuit of art, he um, had to learn the geography of the world from his film premieres. And I just, I, I'm curious how you connect Amodovar's work to, to you know, being Spanish in the world in the decades in which he has been working. I mean, he's so Spanish. He's, he's as every piece about him always has to mention, because it is absolutely crucial, he, you know, blossomed in the movida, the, the movida madrileña, the, the, the flowering of craziness and, and anarchy after the death of Franco, uh, which was a time of drugs and, and, you know, just many awful things as well as this, you know, flowering of democracy and freedom. Um, and his early movies are so full of, you know, honestly, just gross things that it would, it, he was able to to put in movies. After. There's a little bit of a John Waters feel yeah, to absolutely. some of his early movies. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a really relevant uh, connection. Yeah. That he just he put these awful things in because he could. And he is a director who has matured as he has also, you know, become more of an international star. But he is still a very Spanish filmmaker um he he's never made a movie outside of spain and he's he says he has no interest in doing so um and i absolutely believe him and he works with these spanish actors and often um as of really starting i guess with all about my mother maybe um he's been working with some argentinian actors um but still it's very very spanish and these concerns are about you know the Pueblo and, and mothers and these scenes that I think in, in other people's hands would feel very cliched of like, you know, women singing in the water as they're doing the washing. I mean, it's it, it's almost a joke. And yet it's not. It's very moving. Um, or the fact that, you know, he's he's had bullfighters and flamenco dancers and, you know, singers of, of you know, Sevillanas or whatever in several of his films. And, you know, it's 
folklorico, but it, it's it, that's something about that that just feels very emotional and very you know it just taps into something. He's, he's he's someone who I think is a very intellectual filmmaker. Like his characters read books, they go to see performances, they are moved by art, and, and they're think, often artists. It's not yeah, the first time he's yeah, made a film no, about a filmmaker yes. by no, any means. No, no, no. And there's something you know that he is a filmmaker. I think we should also acknowledge who leaves a lot of people cold. Uh, you know, he is what the Brits would call a marmite artist or a marmite thing. You know, like you either love him or hate him. Um, and there are some people who just do, are not, just don't get it, don't get why people like it. Um, but I think uh, there's a certain type of people who do spend a lot of time reading and and reading difficult pieces and and going to see art and being moved by art who see themselves in his films. And I, yeah, to me, it's it's just absolutely. Uh, Gets, gets right to my heart. Yeah, it's always such an ambitious combination of difficulty, you know, and pleasure, right? There's mm-hmm. there's always a lot to, there are layers to get through. There's, in this this movie is sort of a, as you say, a structural puzzle. So it's demanding of the viewer in a certain way. It also has some harsh things. I mean, it's about drug addiction. There's a play within a play that's called La Addiction, right? Yeah. There's kind of, a, there's love addiction going on too and broken hearts and yeah. physical decay and all kinds of hard things. But there's so many layers of pleasure in all of his movies. I almost think of them. This is the impression I had while watching this one, which I really recommend you see on a big screen. Yeah. I didn't, unfortunately. I watched it in the lowest form of watching <laughs> on a laptop with my watermarked name floating over the screen <laughs> and still was just thwacked by the, yeah. the all the layers of, of pleasure in it. There's this gorgeous score by, by Alberto Iglesias, who often does his scores. I think he's worked with him since... Almost the beginning, yeah. And who does these really old school Hollywood style, almost Bernard Herman kind of romantic scores uh, with lots of strings and they're very cushiony. There's a lot Mm. of music used too. I mean, almost every scene has some music under it. I tend not to like movies that are overscored, but Almodovar can do it. He can get away with it. And it's this almost cushioned feeling, like it's cushioned with sound. It's cushioned with color. He uses color. I mean, I'm hardly the first person to say this, but he uses color like no other current director really. It's... I just get so sick of movies now that that use color in such boring ways. Mm-hmm. There either has to be the washed out gritty palette where everything's gray and dark uh, or if color is used, it's it's sort of, you know, just boringly saturated neon. But he has such a sense. He's almost like an interior decorator, mm-hmm, you know, and mm-hmm. in fact, his own I think the furnishings from his own apartment are used for exactly. Banderas's apartment in this yes. movie. I think it was not filmed in his house, but, no, but it's, it's furnished with almost. his real yeah. stuff. Yeah. And uh, and you can just see that he is someone who wants to surround himself with, as Julia said, these kind of unexpected textures and colors. So mm-hmm. even, for example, there's a moment when Antonio Banderas's character gets a uh, MRI, is that what it's called when you yeah. go into the white yeah. tube? And I was just thinking of all the scenes in movies where a sick person gets an MRI and they're always visually boring. It's always about the same thing. Sterile white tube, guy goes into it or woman. And uh, and that scene even manages to be visually interesting. It's got yeah. sort of bright neon lights shining on him as he goes into the tube. And there's this beautiful camera movement where the movement into the MRI tube is then is then match cut to a moving sort of deeply into a memory of his mm-hmm. from the past. Anyway, he's just he's always paying attention to what he's up to visually, and then that just creates such a pleasurable experience yeah. for the viewer. I love that scene too. I think it was a cat scan. I will say, having just had an MRI for something. Oh, that's okay. Fine. But <laughs> I was searching <laughs> was for the skin. correct acronym. Thank you. Um, I, I and. Just to, I, I'm sorry to just keep piling on with, with my praise, but there's something, I, I said this in the interview and I, it's a kind of question that you kind of regret because it's just a piece of flattery from a certain point of view. But I also think it's absolutely true that, I mean, clearly Antonio Banderas, 
Penelope Cruz, they're great actors. Penelope Cruz, especially, I think, is just when she, especially in Spanish, but she can be amazing. The movie Everybody Knows from earlier this year that was directed by an Iranian director, but it's in Spanish. She was fantastic. But in that movie, she was, you know, pretty much on a a level 11 of 10, you know, at all times. She was emotionally uh, just kind of stressed at all times. In this movie, she's very, you know, she plays... um, in a sense, Antonio Banderas's mother, but when he's a boy, you know, she's she's his young mother, as it were. Um, and she, there's something that the, the emotional kind of, I don't know what it is. Like he's able to make you feel things. Like I am not soppy about my mother, and yet, so my 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 real feelings about my mother are one thing, but he gets me to have these soppy feelings about mothers and soppy feelings about also about the artifice of creating that, you know. So I asked him how he gets those performances, which of course is a, a, a question that a director can't actually answer. But you know, he says that he, you know they just trust him and they know him and they work with him and they've been they've both been working for him. They've both been working with him for decades. Um, and if I could say the most pretentious thing I've ever possibly said, but there is a Spanish phrase that we don't really have a proper translation for, where you would say to someone, tenemos confianza. Like, and it's not just there's trust between us, but it's like there's a particular, like an exaggerated trust. And I feel like clearly Almodovar has confianza with Penelope Cruz, with Antonio Banderas, with all of the actors that he works with, all of the actors and the crew members in his in his team but he also has it with the audience you know that if you've been watching his movies you see just things over and over all as you were saying Julia there are these these motifs these things that he returns to and it's it's yeah tenemos confianza well before we go i just want to say one thing which is that you know i i i love living in the golden age of television june as i know you do um i know that you revel in it and what <laughs> netflix and amazon etc have brought us is some extraordinary tv but there's just something without even focusing on what it is to go see a movie in a cinema like setting even that aside there's just something about seeing something that is made as a film by a filmmaker who really is a master of the form and whose essential attitude towards the medium is i think it's fair to say literary in a way you know that a person is making movies over the course of a career um and writing an autobiography and doing so, and to return to a filmmaker who does that with such elan and such control, um, and with such an idiosyncratic style, to me was was moving. It made me realize it's been a long time since I've seen a movie by, you know, just to pick the tip, you know, completely obvious examples. I haven't seen a Truffaut movie in a long time or whatever, but I hadn't seen an Almodovar movie in a long time, and to have lived. Uh, at the same time that someone was creating a body of work like that was a real privilege. So anyway, thanks. uh, Thanks for coming on and talking about it. Thank you for having me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. Uh, before we go any further, I'm guessing that we have some business. Dana, what do you what do you have? 
Yes, Steve, the business. We have a couple of live shows that are coming up that we've been plugging. I really hope that we can fill the theaters for these two shows. The first one will be November 13th in Los Angeles at the Barnsdall Gallery Theater at Barnsdall Art Park. And two days later, November 15th, we'll be in Vancouver at the Granville Island Stage. And both of those will have cocktail hours, I think, after the show where you can mix and mingle with us if you care to. You can find out more information and get your tickets at slate.com slash live. Can I tell you guys one very cool thing about our venue in L.A.? Yeah, I know nothing about it. It is like a very cool venue that is on, it basically shares a site, which is like a hill with great views in the middle of Los Angeles, with a Frank Lloyd Wright house, the Hollyhock house. So if you can come and see us and you can amble around the property and see cool architecture and see cool vistas of Los Angeles, it's near a bunch of really interesting neighborhoods and restaurants. Um, And I am so excited to host you guys here in Fair LA, where it's going to be 90 degrees today. Oh, boy. It better not be that by the time we get there. (laughs) But I know there's some kind of, we're going to be mysterious about what it is because we're not sure yet, but there will be LA field trips and there will be recounting of LA field trips, I hope, at the live show. We will will try to come up with some locally resonant themes. We're still still cooking up our, our plots and plans. Also in Slate Plus today, we're going to talk about... <laughs> it's time. Cats versus dogs. I like that this this topic, this Slate Plus topic, has just taken it down to the studs of just <laughs> just absolute basic... I mean, this is like sub-dorm dorm room over pizza at 3 a.m. level conversation. So I'm just happy that the hardcore Slate Plusers are, are here for it. So to hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, for just $35 for your first year. And in return, you will get extended ad-free versions of this show and many other great Slate shows and other benefits, such as, let me just plug this while we're plugging things, uh, Flashback, which is my new Slate Plus-only podcast about old films and classic films that I do with Kay Austin Collins of Vanity Fair. That is a great podcast, or at least I'm enjoying doing it. And you can find that and many other interesting ones at slate.com slash culture plus. All right, Steve, back to the show. Dolly Parton is a magnet for superlatives, great songwriter, singer, musician, performer, and just all around star, really. Um, Also, one's instinct says a wonderful human being, Dolly Parton's America is a new podcast from Jad Abumrad of Radiolab fame, and it does nothing to dispel any of this. The project began with a marvelous coincidence. Uh, Jad's father is a doctor who happened to treat Dolly Parton for some injuries sustained in a car crash, and the two of them struck up a friendship, so Jad had pretty great access to this world historical figure. He thought he'd do something with it. Um, By which he meant, you know, an hour of programming, a couple of hours of programming. No, you start to talk to Dolly one-on-one and uh, this magnificent trove of uh, memory and humor opens up and it's expanded to nine hours. She is, by some empirical measures, the least disliked famous person in the world. In a time of deep divisions, political and otherwise, that is a sort of salvific thing to be. She's also a woman who has become a feminist icon after starting her life as a anti-feminist punchline in some respects. Uh, So what precisely is the wonderful alchemical mix here that makes Dolly Parton Dolly? Let's uh, let's listen to a clip. I first spoke to Dolly Parton in November of 2017. My chair's squeaking. It's the squeaky one, right? Oh, I know the squeaky chair gets the grease, but we don't have time for a lube job today. (laughs) We got a show to do. We sat down in a studio in Nashville in a squeaky chair uh, in front of a mic that unfortunately had a little bit of a buzz in it. Dolly had uh, just come off of her Pure and Simple tour. She captured the hearts of generations. That was the tour where she uh, famously played the pan flute. Oh yeah, just for show. 
<laughs> I'm not great at any of it, but I can, I can make a good show. Okay. That's good. Better take off the jewels before I hammer and mess up a good take. <laughs> I had heard you play 20-something instruments. Is that right? Oh, I play Adam. Uh, okay. <laughs> I don't play any of them well. <laughs> the guitar is my best one. But I play a lot of mountain instruments, too. Dulcimer. Auto harp. Banjo, that kind of stuff. And you play wind, too. You play, you... Well, that's the penny whistle. We do a little bit of an Appalachian thing that we, just a little woodwind, but not. it's just the mountain sounds. It's not like something you'd learn okay. or play in an orchestra. It's just... It's just got that old mountain sound. Gotcha. Julia, let me start with you. This is some very shrewdly done storytelling. It begins with this idea of her as a punchline, which to someone my age might have been an association I once had with Dolly Parton. It's been knocked out of my head ages ago by uh, expanded knowledge of her as an artist and a human being. But anyway, it sets up the arc of her career in the whole show, which is how she emerges of, uh, as this figure of towering and, and maybe even universal respect. Uh, what do you make of this? Oh, I loved this. I mean, I I think I've mentioned on the show before that the three albums that we had in my home growing up were uh, Thriller, the Les Miserables soundtrack, and uh, Dolly Parton's Odd Jobs, which is the album that contains 9 to 5. Um, and I'll stand by those three musical forebears, or at least I'll stand by the, the Dolly Parton of it. Um, so I've always loved her music and that was an era when she was still a like you know boobed up punchline um but the music was just so great and then i i came to know through various friends who had a wiser and deeper knowledge of the the meaning of her career more about her work but to me my biggest surprise in this was not that i liked a dolly podcast because duh like uh, you know there's a part of me that feels like rather than talking about this podcast for 10 minutes we should just like seed the time and play a bunch of clips of dolly talking from the podcast because she's so charming to listen to and so dexterous with language and so um, full of sharp and acute self-knowledge, but um, but also seemingly so sincere and unself-conscious at the same time. She just is a very magnetic, compelling describer and narrator of her own existence. But anyway, I... I, I I think I've discussed in this show, maybe I, maybe it's my dark audio secret. I do not like Radiolab, the show that Jad Abumrad is most known for, because of its like overwrought production is the way I would describe it. There's constantly all these like layered scratches and scratches and this sort of condescending tone about how much you remember about cell walls. And I, I, I just don't think of it myself as a fan of that style. And I found the production style on this show to work. There are some places where um, interviews with figures from Dolly's past and contemporary interviews with Dolly and archival tape are all layered and patterned on top of each other. And I just found it masterful, like a really wonderful way to have the different moments and epics of her career speaking to one another and, and making sense of them for us today. And so yeah, I'm so pleased. I really loved the first two episodes, and I can't wait to listen to the rest. Julia, I wish I agreed with you. You and I have talked before about our mutual distaste for not just Radiolab, but a certain style of overproduced 
radio and podcasting that, as you say, I to me, I agree, seems too spoon feeding or condescending or feels like the information that's coming at you has to be constantly sweetened with these audio bits and rapid edits. And uh, this show does not escape that for me. So I had I was listening to it in this Hegelian state of, you know, being torn between the the first principle that anything involving Dolly Parton talking into a microphone, much less singing, is a pure delight and you can't stop listening to it. Right. I mean, forget about her singing voice for a moment. Does anyone have a better speaking voice than Dolly no, Parton? No. I mean, it's no, just no. like this jangly bell that's so beautiful and she's so funny, <laughs> self-deprecating, just like it's impossible to um, to sort of discomfort or disquiet her. If she doesn't want to talk about something because it's private, she she shuts it off without any sense of kind of rancor toward the interviewer, you know, but then she also reveals these surprising details. I mean, she's a wonderful interview subject. So you kind of can't go wrong. But at the same time, the interviews bother me and a lot of the production bothers me because I feel like it's not, it's not worthy of Dolly. Um, there, Okay, and a couple of the specific criticisms would be the musical clips that are played are much too short. There would just be 10 seconds or something of a song that she's, you know, just described the entire history of its composition. And, you know, you're just dying to hear a little bit more. And it has to sort of quickly cut away to me on the mm -hmm. assumption that our attention sort of can't stay on that song any longer. At one point, he takes a song, the producers take a song and kind of was it was it Jolene maybe and chop it up oh, yeah, into this sort of no echoey sound so it's sort of Jolene 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 you know just as if it's not entertaining enough to just hear a fragment of the original song and also there's sort of a bizarre I wonder what our producer would think of this as a maker of audio objects for people every week there's just a, a strange ordering of the information where sometimes the lead is kind of buried I think it's about seven minutes into the show before you hear Dolly's voice and even hear the story Steve that you just recounted about Jad's father being Dolly's doctor for at one point and that's how he connected with her to me aren't you going to want to get right away to the fact that that coincidence happened and suddenly he was sitting in a room with Dolly Parton but instead there's this slow wind up about you know, millennials and how do they experience Dolly Parton mm. and what's the online discourse right. about her? And I just felt like there was a lot of sort of dull theorizing about her before we got to the very juicy fact that he's about to sit down in a room in front of a microphone with her. Um, and then at the, the second episode, we only got a chance to hear two. That's all that has been released so far. But the end of the second episode has almost the opposite problem where instead of bearing the lead, there's this strange coda at the end. So if you're listening to the second episode, listen after the credits, because after every credit has been read and every person thanked, then suddenly, for, for some reason I don't understand, Jad comes on and says, Oh, and here's this other story and then tells this pretty crucial to the narrative story about the song I Will Always Love You and how Kevin Costner came to use it for Whitney Houston in the movie The Bodyguard. And I mean, it's a story that belongs in the main body of the episode talking about I realize that this is this is, you know, I'm sort of getting into the, the weeds here because the important thing is, if you love Dolly Parton, you should listen to this podcast. But I did have a struggle with the way the information was presented versus the stuff that I actually wanted to hear. Well, uh, so let me split the difference a little bit. I love Dolly Parton going and I love her vastly more having listened to two hours of this programming. Um, I, I can't say that I unreservedly love... I, 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 will, I will say that I do love the podcast. I don't know that I unreservedly love it. Um, I really dislike the deconstruction... Uh, the post-production deconstruction of those original songs is so pointless. Um, you learn nothing when they... When they uh, uh, take out every track except the rhythm track and then add an echoey vocal or whatever. Let's just listen to Dolly. Let it stand alone as a, as a piece of music. Jolene doesn't need zhuzhing up or stripping down in order to be a riveting piece of music. Just let's let's listen to it. 
Dolly Parton is asked directly by Jab whether or not she's a feminist, and she recoils at the word. And the podcast then goes on a fairly long digression about why women of a certain generation who grew up in poor rural environments might might recoil at the word, might dislike, like almost violently reject the word as a label for them, even though the way they actually bear themselves in the world is deeply feminist. They're they're tough, resilient, independent uh, uh, women who are self-starters and who do not want to be at the mercy of patriarchy in any way, shape, or form, but they don't want to be called this. And I listened coincidentally to the second half of the podcast with my 13-year-old daughter when they go interview this grandmother of this talking head who's on, you know, filling out the kind of feminist aspect of the narrative. And we were both riveted. At first, I was like, this is so beside the point. Why Why are we already at filler in episode one? But the deeper you got into this other woman's voice, you realized this is what it's like to be a contemporary of Dolly Parton. Uh to have grown up under similar circumstances, to have been knocked around by violent, vile men, to have gotten up over and over and over again, and over those decades forged a self, um, while being a huge Dolly Parton fan. And then there was just a marvelous twist at the end of it. And I was like, this is, I mean, we just sat, my daughter and I just sat there in silence, and I was like, this is great fucking audio. I mean, this is great radio. And it was so marvelous to hear it with her. Um, and then the other thing, I mean, we'll get into it a little bit later, but I also think by and large, digressive as it is, they are unfolding a story that's cogent and comes in stages that has to do with her creative biography, what kind of a songwriter and singer and public figure she was at first and how that evolved. And that story to me, Julia, is just completely riveting. It's riveting. And I also think they're going for, I mean, who knows? Who knows if they'll pull it off? I feel like Dana has reawakened my skepticism of this style. But I agree. Like, I had the same instinctive hackle raise when they were like, okay, so we've introduced this ostensible expert on our show as, quote unquote, the spirit animal of our podcast and our Dolly Quest. And now somehow we're going with her to Kansas to meet her grandma in an elaborate feint to basically explain why imagined you know, liberal elite podcast listeners shouldn't give up on this show just because Dolly vehemently vehemently denies being a feminist on the first pass. Then we go hang out with this non-feminist badass Kansan, and then we, then Jad goes back to Dolly and finds a way to get her to uh, acknowledge that she might be a feminist in practice, as almost as like preamble to, I don't know, there's, there was something about the conceit of it that seemed convoluted and had a lack of faith, as Dana said, that we would just hang out in Dolly's presence. But I agree. It weirdly worked. Like that woman's voice was kind of amazing. And I don't know, it it made me feel like this show is up to something potentially quite interesting. I think it just about, you know, what is the point of looking at the least disliked famous person in the world, arguably, at this particular moment? I feel like it's trying to do something that's about more than her music and about uh, changes in the culture and the way we relate to and conceive of one another over the last couple decades. And I don't know. I don't know if it's going to pull it off, but uh, I think its ambitions are broader than just to understand Dolly. And that might seem like a disservice to the the joy of getting so much time on tape with Dolly. But 
I'll, I'll, I'll allow it, as the judge says on Law & Order. Like, I, I'm very curious to hear the rest and see uh, whether they can bring it home. Yeah, I agree. I have no problem with the, with the narrative digressing away from Dolly's life and finding other interesting people to interview. That's not quite what I was getting at. I think it has more to do with how chopped up the information is. I think I just wish that it was diced a little bit less finely, if that makes any sense, and that we had some bigger chunks of both Dolly and non-Dolly to chew on in between the moments when the interstitial bits are telling us how to feel about it. Mm-hmm. I, I want to get at something else about the uh, about the... A show that I think is quite, quite shrewdly done, and and is only possible in the context of having, you know, nine hours to fill. I think if it were two, you'd go, you'd, you'd breeze through this way too quickly. But it's just her development as a songwriter. I mean, you know, if you were to strip everything else away from Dolly Parton that we think of as so essentially her, the look, the feel, the sound of her, and just took what she put down on paper, she would still be among the greats. And someone, some critic comes on, talking head comes on, and says quite accurately don't not write about this there have been books there have been academic books written about johnny cash's capacities as a songwriter significance as a songwriter um dolly parton deserves the same treatment well i think they're giving it to her which which is really noble i mean and they tell it beautifully she starts out taking these old scotch irish welsh murder ballads which are almost always told from the point of view of the man who is brutal brutalizing a woman and sort of excusing his own behavior in some way and she totally recasts them from the point of view of the women these sad ass songs as dolly parton herself calls them she wrote them essentially by the bushel but but they were kind of secretly or not so secretly feminist because of the you know turned point of view and then second she started to become a star when she was able to take her own image as a supposedly potentially dumb blonde whose voice by her own assessment has a kind of mini mouse quality to it she hates the sound of her own voice very interesting revelation in it um and she takes total possession of that by by um making jokes at her own expense and showing you that she's actually a cunning a cunning businesswoman and artist uh, by doing it. And then, I mean, it's just, I, I know I'm going on and on and on, but there are just so many aspects to it. Then she figures out that by adding a kind of rhythm and blues, almost rock and roll sound with the song Lady Mule Skinner, she can shed this shy girl, little girl, good good girl persona that she's developing in Nashville uh, and become something way uh, uh, grittier and tougher. Uh, and it's at that point she begins to write songs by the by by the bushel. I mean, she, the, the pace of creativity from that moment on is incredible. And then in quick succession, you get Jolene, I Will Always Love You, Coat of Many Colors. She just becomes a, a songwriter of the first rank. And, you know, we, Julia, in this show, we complain very often when we see the biopics, the rock biopics. This part of the story often comes and goes in two seconds. Like Elton John sits down at the piano and you know, suddenly can write your song or something. But this, I think they lingered over this in a way that I really appreciated. Yeah, I hope it will continue to be lingered over even more. I could get even more into the details, the nitty gritty of how one sits down and writes a song. And it's mentioned, and this is sort of a legend about Dolly Parton that seems to be confirmed by one of these episodes, that she wrote her two biggest hits or the songs that we most associate with her, Jolene and I Will Always Love You on the same day. Or she said at least they were on the same tape, which seemed to indicate that they were from the same composition session. And so, of course, I would like to know, any creative person would like to know, you know, what the hell is Dolly Parton on that she sits down and writes those two <laughs> songs together in one day? You know, what's her what's her working process like? I just wanted to mention another that she sings in this podcast 
podcast that's lesser known um, that's called Down to Dover. And she talks about how that song was not a hit. In fact, many radio stations wouldn't play it when she wrote it back in the, I think, late 60s, early 70s, uh, because it was so dark and because it was about a, an unwed pregnancy, you know, an out of marriage pregnancy. Um, it's so gorgeous and sad. And, and the tiny, way too tiny, thanks, Jad, clip of it that we get to hear in the podcast is fantastic. And I just wanted to mention that on the Dolly Parton album, Little Sparrow, which is maybe my favorite of her albums, it's all apple. Appalachian songs and folk songs and just very stripped down versions of, you know, traditional songs that she grew up with in Tennessee. There's a beautiful, beautiful version of, of Down to Dover. So um, I didn't connect that with this whole history of it not being allowed to be played on the radio. So I wanted to mention that one on Little Sparrow. All right. Well, their podcast is called Dolly Parton's America. We have somewhat mixed feelings about it, but not really. It's kind of great. You should check it out. All right. Moving on. The most popular playwright in America has no Broadway hit to her name, so writes Dan Coyce in his wonderful profile of Lauren Gunderson, the playwright, which is now up on Slate.com. He goes on to say, in fact, she's never had a play on Broadway. In fact, she's only had a handful of New York appearances at all. Nonetheless, according to America Theater's just-released list in 2019-20 season, 33 different productions of Lauren Gunderson plays are going up at theaters around the country. Dan, welcome back to the show. Hey, everyone. I should say that you are a Slate Renaissance man, podcaster, editor, uh, writer, and uh, the author of the new book, How to Be a Family, The Year I Dragged My Kids Around the World to Find a New Way to Be Together. Dan Coyce, uh, welcome back. Dan, she is, Lauren Gunderson is extremely, extremely popular, sort of the Thomas Kincaid uh, phenomenon, um, massively empirically popular um figure who doesn't have a corresponding level of prestige or or high critical respect exactly what led you to this uh, story uh i was just fascinated by this list that american theater publishes every year you know they they survey all their all member theaters which include most of the big regionals and a bunch of many small regionals around the country um, and every year, Lauren Gunderson would appear at the top of this list. And every year, I would sort of wait for one of her plays to come to New York. Uh, and it would never come. I'd never seen a Gunderson play in my life. But there she was, like the most produced playwright. And I became really interested in this idea of, well, what theater is most of America watching? You know, I tend to – I'm even though I don't live in New York, I'm a very New York-centric theater person. I My theater – menu, my diet revolves around, well, what was on Broadway? What's off Broadway? What's New York Theater Workshop doing? You know, what's Playwrights Horizons doing? And then that stuff typically filters out to the rest of the country. But here's a playwright who's clearly critical to what is happening in American theater as viewed by most Americans, yet I had never really had a chance to see one of her shows. Mm-hmm. Give Maybe give our listeners some sense of what a Lauren Gunderson play is like. You say quite clearly that they're not cool. They they don't traffic in moral or deep psychological ambiguity necessarily, and they tend to end with exclamation points. Give us a little bit of the flavor of a Gunderson play. Sure. I mean, she has a couple of different modes that she works in, but almost all her plays um, uh, are brisk comedies um, with a plucky woman at the center, maybe a couple of plucky women. Um, they're very steeped in classical literature in science and the history of science. There's almost always a romantic plot at the center of it. Um, They are crowd pleasers in sort of a traditional sense, right? They are 
They're historical romantic comedies. They are uh, plays about women scientists achieving something in the face of men disregarding them. Um, several of her most popular plays are adaptations or sort of quasi sequels to Jane Austen novels set at Christmas time. They're holiday shows for regional theaters. Um, she really specializes in creating these shows that regional theater audiences, which are markedly different, I think, than New York audiences really spark to. Can I ask you a question, Dan? I guess that's the point of this segment. The plays sound bad. They sound bad. And I (laughs) pride myself on not being a snob. And and then reading your piece, I felt like I was staring the like wizened hag of my own snobbishness in the face. Because I was like, they really invite snobbishness. Yeah. Yeah. Are 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 they bad? Uh, I I think some of them what did you come away? Feeling. I so I read about fifteen Gunnarsson plays. I mean, one thing about her is that she she writes like four or five plays a year, um, and so you know, at any given moment, there's like twenty different Lauren Gunnarsson plays that you could choose for your regional theater to produce. So there's a lot to choose from, um, and I found them a really mixed bag. Like there were some some of those shows I found just sort of cloying and uninteresting in a way that I thought even on stage would be true. Like some plays from the page to the stage, you can totally see how the magic of putting this in front of an audience will enliven the piece, will make it something that's absolutely worth seeing because you're in that space with those actors. But many of her plays, it was equally easy for me to see why, even though they you know, they seem desperately uncool. I mean, intentionally uncool. Why they, even though they don't really address the politics of our time in like a provocative or a necessarily compelling way, if I was in a theater watching this show, I would have a great time. They're full of jokes. Um, she's very good at using the the tricks and machinations of the theater to create potent moments and images on a stage. And as Steve mentioned, she writes these like great endings. She writes big explosive endings where all the magic of the play comes together, usually in some kind of big theatrical moment that I, that I can totally see would lead you out of the room, like singing at the end of that. Now, two years later, are you going to look back on that play and be like, wow, that was like a great, dramatic construction that taught me a lot and that I'm glad I saw. They sort of, not necessarily, they sort of remind me of like great, like nonfiction books where when you, like when you read a Michael Lewis book, you're like, boy, I understand credit default swaps. And then at the two days later, you're like, I don't remember anything about that, but I really (laughs) remember the feeling of, of understanding it for that one moment. I think the plays (laughs) deliver a feeling of understanding and, and passionate, happiness inside a the- theatrical space, especially for audiences who don't see 30 plays a year. And I think they evaporate a little bit afterwards, but you do remember the the, ha- the feeling you had. I also love the line in your piece where uh, she defends writing plays about people who fall in love and then are in love at the end. And she says, I think people fall in love all the time. It's not weird to write about it. And I love the defense of romance as a plot that is worth our time and attention. So I found her both like compelling and then found the work unappealing at the same time. Well, that's an argument that gets made a lot in a bunch of other genres too, right? The classic argument in film about whether romantic comedies get unnecessarily dismissed on on the critical front. That happens in 
books and fiction where, you know, many writers, Jennifer Weiner particularly, have been fighting this battle for many years to get, quote unquote, women's fiction taken seriously. Um, and that's something that was raised by people I talked to, including one of the only producers in New York who has put on her work, Lisa McNulty at the Women's Project, um, who talked a lot about when you're – if there was a man who had had this many regional productions, who was clearly overwhelmingly an enormous voice in American theater, he would have a big New York production. And even if that play was about domestic issues or love, the way Lauren Gunderson's plays were, they wouldn't be dismissed the way that Lauren Gunderson's plays often are. Well, Dan, that that brings us back to an interesting, almost philosophical question at the heart of the piece, which is, you know, what's the relationship between success and prestige? And, you know, not only like Julia, are we brought face to face with our own wizened, horrible, snobbish, schoolmarmy self uh, when we confront something that's popular but for which we have no respect. I mean, there's the flip side of it, which is she does at some level want to be dignified by a serious production mounted in New York City, which after all is the capital of American theater, to be met with at least some degree of critical respect. Uh, and she's kind of at a... Uh, that moment is possibly arriving for her. There's going to be a large production of her work in New York City, right? Yeah, well, so she actually... I mean, she comes out of a New York theater background. She comes out of like the the classic background for a New York insider playwright, which is that she went to the NYU MFA, pro- MFA program along with you know, that's where Tony Kushner went. That's where Lucas Anath went. That's where Annie Baker went. That's, you know, that's the program uh, in many ways for launching a New York theater career. And then she immediately after graduating took off for the West Coast and has rarely been seen in New York since. But in talking to her, I really heard that for all for all the pride she has and the career that she's made at all these regionals, for all the relationships she's created with artistic directors at these regionals and the way she serves those audiences – she does feel like New York is something she would like to conquer, a, a market, a place she would like to be, a place where she still sees theater that inspires her and where she doesn't really see her own work. And yeah, so this fall, she has a show opening at the Manetta Lane, um, an off-Broadway house. Um, it, it, she's had other shows off-Broadway, three shows off-Broadway over the course of her career, but this is the first time one of her plays is premiering, the world premieres happening off-Broadway in a production with, you know, a, a semi-big star, Kate Mulgrew, the TV actress um, from Orange is the New Black, who's a beautiful uh, theater actress. Um, and it's a and it's a very traditionally Lauren Gundersonian play. It's a a play about uh, Marie Curie and the later parts of her life when she was sort of struggling against uh, public sentiment, uh, where she was hiding out from those who wanted to condemn her, but still thinking back on the great achievements of her scientific career, even as she was about to fall prey to uh, the radiation that she had studied all her life. Um, and it's not being put on by a big theatrical producer in, in something that I thought was pretty striking. It's not, you know, it's not Jude Jamson or Scott Rudin or Manhattan Theater Club or any of the sort of big New York producing companies that's bringing her to premiere in New York. It's Audible, audible.com, the, the audiobook company, which has been investing in theater over the last few years in an attempt to bring more audio drama to their Listeners, So they're putting on this play in New York, you know, for a month and a half starting in November, and then it will be an audio drama that you can download on Audible forevermore. And that's sort of the the marketing angle. But it was really interesting to me that even now when she's getting this premiere, it's not like 
a, a traditional New York premiere. And I'm, you know, I'm sure it will get covered and it's going to get written about, but she still hasn't like cracked that like big New York theater establishment. Uh, all right, Dan, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Your profile is called Is America's Favorite Playwright Too Much for New York? It's up on Slate now. It is very, very, very good. Um, check it out. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, everyone. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? Uh, my endorsement this week, I'm hand-flappingly excited about it, um, even though it's extremely not cool and not timely and is exactly out of the loop of coolness in the way that people just sort of finished talking about it when I discovered it. But, Julia, I'm pretty sure that you must have read this book I'm going to endorse because you interviewed the author when we went to the Sydney Writers' Festival a couple of years ago. G- George Saunders' Lincoln and the Bardo, yes? Yes. Have you read it? I guess. Have you endorsed it? No. Okay, good. So I can flap my hands about it now. So yes, um, I had been putting off reading this novel, even though it was so widely praised. It was so the hot novel that year that it almost sort of turned me off the way that the latest hot book sometimes does. It won the Man Booker Prize that year, 2017, when it came out. And because and I love George Saunders and historically have kept up with pretty much everything he's done, but because I think of him as an essayist and a short story writer, and this was his first novel, And I had not yet read. It was just dumb. I mean, I was just thinking about literature in the way that people should not think about it, which is as as this sort of progressive, linear set of tasks to be accomplished. And because I had not yet read 10th of December, which was his book of short stories that came out prior to this yet, I somehow thought, oh, but I must read his stories. And then one day I will conquer that novel. And as a result, I never read either one of them. And they were just sort of hanging there in limbo, fittingly, for a book that takes place entirely in limbo. But this past weekend, I was at a friend's house just paging through their bookshelves randomly, thought, oh, Lincoln and the Bardo. I remember I wanted to read that. So I took it down off his shelf and sort of sat on the stairs paging through it for a few minutes. And let me just say that I stayed up until two o'clock that night reading almost the entire thing and then finished in another sitting the next day. So I read the whole book in two sittings and 24 hours. That's how good it is. It's just one of those rare, rare books that brings together... It's extremely uh, demanding and yet generous on the level of language. So, it, you know, it requires a lot from the reader, and that's the kind of novel I like. It's it's fiction that sort of teaches you how to read it as you go along because it's written in a very specific language. Uh, it's, it touches on incredibly profound questions. I mean, the whole book essentially is about death and what happens after you die. Um, and yet it's extremely funny in the way that George Saunders always is. It's just so wonderful. And he's con- his first novel just conquers the form of the novel in such a fascinating way. Um, not to tell you too much about it, and probably because it was such a hot book a couple of years ago, people know the basic setup. But the premise essentially is based on this story, true life story that George Saunders had heard many years ago. For 20 years, he sat with this image in his mind about how when Lincoln's youngest son, Willie, died in 1862 of typhoid fever, they think, um, that he was so grief-stricken that he went to the crypt where Willie's body was kept several times. And this was reported in the papers at the time. And uh, and no one knew why. No one knew what he was doing in the crypt. It isn't known whether he exhumed the body and held it, which is what happens in the novel. But essentially, that was how he struggled with the grief of the death of his youngest son. And based on that little kernel of a story, George Saunders has come up with this whole universe of 166 different spirits of dead people that are in this graveyard that are observing from different angles what's going on and figuring it out as best they can and working out their own sort of problems that are keeping them caught in the afterlife, the kind of limbo afterlife that they're in. And uh, Willie Lincoln is one of the voices that tells the story. Abe Lincoln isn't quite a voice that tells the story, but sometimes the spirits occupy him in a way where they can read his thoughts. And it's all just written with such 
masterful complexity and such ability to animate these different voices from all different historical periods. And this is a writer, George Saunders, who usually writes contemporary things and uses contemporary language. So the amount of research that he must have had to do, he also has a lot of uh, quotes from historical sources about Lincoln, some of them made up, some of them real. It's hard to tell which sometimes. As you can see from this description, it's a really complex tapestry of a book, but it's spellbinding and beautiful. So it's one of the best things I've read in years. Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. Oh, wow. Um, Julia, what do you have? My endorsement is a counterpart to Dana's from a couple weeks ago. Dana endorsed the book, uh, She Said, the Jody Cantor and Megan Tui recounting of their reporting on the Harvey Weinstein story. I have just finished that book and Ronan Farrow's Catch and Kill, which is his recounting of his reporting of the Harvey Weinstein story. And I am dying to talk to people about them. I, 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 it's To read two books for one segment is like probably too much, but... Man, they are fascinatingly discussable documents. I'm interviewing Ronan Farrow on stage. It'll be too late, I suppose, to come for our listeners by the time this airs. But um, and, and I'm looking forward to that conversation and to asking him how he put his reporting in the book together. But they just take such different approaches. And they're both wonderful reads. And if you care at all about journalism, I mean, you sort of think that they're books about Me Too and sexual assault and sexual harassment and sexual misconduct, and they are, but fundamentally, they're both very, very, very different journalism procedurals. And if you care about the craft of journalism at all, they are both really interesting and and complementary texts. So I recommend both. Um, And yeah, I would love to discuss them with you both at some point. All right. Well, my endorsement this week is a book called Life and Death on the New York Dance Floor, 1980 to 1983 by a British scholar named Tim Lawrence, who, um, I mean, talk about deep, deep, deep dive into the basically the the party and dance scene um, as it flourished in New York in the very early years of the um, of the 1980s. And why is this important? It's kind of where um punk disco and hip-hop all came together and created popular music culture laid the kind of blueprint for popular music culture that we've been working off of ever since it feels as though it's such an odd moment in the history of new york because and and music because what was going on was very ephemeral in a way. It was unselfconscious and ephemeral. It was people basically partying. It was a DJ, you know, heavily DJ driven scene. Um, and the galvanic moment really hadn't happened yet where people realized that hip hop was going to be an on vinyl, you know, music phenomenon to displace rock and roll. There was nothing like that consciousness yet. And, uh, and Lawrence is just, he's a he's a academic and a natural cultural critic. He writes very well, very lucidly. Um, and he, he, there's just nothing about this scene that doesn't fascinate him. And there, there, there are moments of such total ephemera that, that they were scarcely ever memorialized at all. Just the way in which a certain group of people were partying in a certain way, at a certain loft, at a certain time, that seemed quite trivial, but then hook into another narrative where someone in the Bronx meets someone downtown and for the first moment, you know, there's this galvanic realization that graffiti, breakdancing, rapping, and DJing are all a part of a single culture called hip-hop. Like, it's just about that incredible threshold where something very spontaneous, very fun, and totally transient turns into something concrete, real, and kind of 
popularly historic and he captures that moment beautifully it's a really cool book it is probably more in sheer quantity than your average reader wants i'm reading every word because i'm fascinated by this period especially in new york city um uh, it's also a snapshot of a city before, um, as he puts it, AIDS, Reaganomics, and gentrification come along and destroy the city's ability to produce that degree of spontaneity, as far as we know, for good. Um, but um, uh, anyway, it it wouldn't one would not have to read every word of this book in order to get at its larger narrative, and the parts that interest you are going to be beautifully beautifully rendered. So, highly recommended. Tim Lawrence's. Life and Death on the New York Dance Floor, 1980 to 1983. All right. Uh, thank you, Dana. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today. It's at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or interact with us on our Twitter feed. That's at Slate Cultfest. Um, I failed to say it this week. Let me say it. I do love getting mail. We all love getting mail from you. So do email us. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our uh, production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you soon. Mm-hmm.